Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the University of California Board of Regents. You're listening to Ask a Leader, and I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. We'll be back in just a moment uh, while we queue up some guests and cover today a dedication to one Jeannie Bernstein, whom we lost last Saturday. Stay with me. Good morning. This is Claudia Shambaugh. As I said on Ask a Leader, today I dedicate this show to Jeannie Bernstein, Orange County activist over the decades who died this last weekend. She was 88 years old, born somewhere in the East and raised in the Watsonville, California area. Jeannie always had a proper and a militant bearing about her. She raised four children, mainly in Laguna Beach, where she lived out the large remainder of her life. A standard bearer of peace vigils since 1975 and the co-founder of the Alliance for Survival, Jeannie Bernstein protested the war in Vietnam, the nuclear power generated in San Onofre, and the nuclear weapons testing in Mercy, Nevada, the toll road system in Orange County, the Persian Gulf War, and the Iraq War. She was arrested when she tied herself to the bulldozers poised to clear the land in her beloved Laguna Canyon. At the test site in Mercy, Nevada, her scaling the fences was a tactic that depleted the security budget of that facility. Every annual, every year I was told that, um, that half of their budget was depleted by the time the Jeannie and others were scaling those fences. Jeannie had helped establish Laguna's main beach ritualistic weekly congregations of hundreds, hundreds of ticked off Republicans, move on Democrats, Greens, Libertarians, leisure worlders, students, grandpas, grannies, and many first time protesters, as the OC Weekly would recover, recall of her stints there. Leading this fray, Jeannie objected to the official Bush administration's figures for those killed in Iraq. She and her compatriots questioned how many casualties resulting from that war were not counted among the final tally. Her last appearance of Laguna City's Main Beach Weekly Peace Vigil was about two years ago when she still could wheel her chair with compatriots Irene Bland, Eleanor Henry, and Liz Erger. Oh, compatriots of Jeannie Bernstein's, we do wonder what she would have made of the Occupy Wall Street. We can only guess. Folks, you can look her up with the many articles that have covered her activism from the OC Weekly to the LA Times and who knows where. Thanks, I say, to Eleanor Henry and Marilyn Vassos for contributing to this tribute, taking stock of the life, the gaiety, the vigor, and the sweetness of political activist Jeannie Bernstein. Today on this show, we'll carry the theme further when we hear from UCI political science professor Wayne Sandholtz, who will talk about the human rights and the America's war on the terror, USA's wars on terror. 
The second half of the show, we'll hear from Kathleen Collinson, president of the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies, who will weigh in on all the retirement and market trends facing us in these very uncertain economic times. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back talking with Wayne. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest is Wayne Sandholtz, Professor of Political Science at UC Irvine and a member of UCI Center for the Study of Democracy. His current research includes projects on the development and effects of international norms on international courts and tribunals and on the comparative study of corruption. He was the former director of the Global Peace and Conflict Studies, which at the time had the perfect opportunity of rebranding that name with Wayne's World, but it wasn't. Today, Wayne Sandholtz comes to us from UC Irvine's campus to talk about with us about human rights and the wars on terror. In his recent book, Prohibiting Plunder, How Norms Change, uh, Wayne Sandholt shows that norms on wartime plunder have changed over the centuries. Today, we hear from Wayne Sandholt as he lays out the kind of human rights repercussions we inherit legally, socially, and politically as we assess American military conduct on many fronts around the world. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Sandholt. Thanks very much, Claudia. I'm so glad that you are with us to uh, talk about what's going on because it's very topical. We can start with this week's announcement of President Obama's withdrawing U.S. troops from Iraq by December 31st of this very year, 2011. And has the has the government, a U.S. government and the U.S. military, resolved the essential legal questions about immunity of future troop involvement? Well, the U.S. government thinks it has it in declaring that U.S. military personnel and private contractors working with the U.S. military are going to be immune from local jurisdiction. But the Iraqis clearly did not agree with that. So it, there's two ways to look at this withdrawal. It's because we're done or because they're done. <laughs> I think both are probably correct. Certainly the, the American public seems to have tired of the war and and lost confidence that, that our presence there is accomplishing anything useful. And, and it appears that the Iraqi people have also, uh, that we've worn out our welcome with the Iraqi people themselves. Well, then let's talk about then what sorts of, um, what we're uh, concerned about, the, the discussion of the number of trainers, the place of training, uh, all that stopped. And as Nouri al-Maliki, the Iraqi prime minister, said that that was, that was a deal breaker to have American troops remain on his turf. So uh, let's go back, turn the clock back again, uh, back in Iraq, the, as we've engaged in the war there, and talk to those kinds of, you know, uh, human rights transgressions that we may very well need to consider there is payback looming with the... Um, as I, I keep going back, uh, Professor Sandholtz, to when John Paul Lederach was here in 2001. It's not that long ago. And he talked about the memory of certain cultures, serpent, serpent, tribal cultures of a transgression, a commin, 
committed against one of their own, um, we likely have those kinds of transgressions in the human rights arena to think about payback somewhere along the line for up to, he said, three to five generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that could very well be true. Certainly, I think Iraqis and most Americans and, and many people around the world will have long memories when it comes to events like Abu Ghraib, the massive abuses that occurred at the American-run prison there and that became public in, I think, early or spring of 2004. No one's going to forget those very soon. And in a similar way, I think Iraqis will not soon forget some of the abuses of private contractors like the... Uh, the, the big black- shootout that was carried out that was carried out by Blackwater at Nisor Square. Yeah, exactly. When a number of Iraqi civilians were killed by uh, trigger-happy American contractors, those things people won't forget those things very soon. Well, and I, I'm concerned. With, we're we're hopping all over the uh, Nisor Square. Uh, never was fully. Uh, addressed in a, in a legal or a political situation. I think it was just a reorganized matter, which is neither legal nor political. And uh, we have, with uh, in Pre- President Obama's uh, administration, a continuation of uh, the now reorganized Blackwater into the, com- the, or- the community company, excuse me, I don't know why I'm doing this today, the company named Z, X-E, mm-hmm. um, that... Uh, the Obama administration has contracted out another quarter billion worth of contract. It's not in Iraq. It was uh, because Nouri al-Maliki uh, sent them packing. But um, it, when we talk about Afghanistan, we can talk about the, the current liability of Z uh, working with the not just the Department but uh, of State, but also with the uh, CIA. So back to Iraq. What um, I mean, you've talked about plundering uh, artifacts and all that, but what kinds of are there specific concerns, offenses that uh, were committed in the Iraqi war theater that you know we must be concerned about and uh, keep a watchful eye on and watch our policymakers uh, attend to this? I don't. I can't say that I know of specific offenses or abuses, but but we've seen reported in the press over the years numerous incidents in which U.S. military personnel or private contractors associated with them have been involved in uh, the killing of civilians or the use of disproportionate use of force, uh, shootouts and, and so on in which, in which civilians were killed. And in some cases, it appears uh, assassinated, essentially, uh, by U.S. military personnel. A number of those cases have gone to courts martial. So it's not as if the in- United States is, is completely ignoring um, offenses or abuses committed by its own in Iraq. So there, there have been dozens of, of courts martial initiated against U.S. personnel based for their actions in Iraq. The courts martial were those in uh, Iraq or in the United States or or both, or in the international Hague. Um, courts martial would be uh, U.S. military courts, and as far as I know, they're they're conducted here in the states. A number of them have been carried out uh, just down the freeway at Camp Pendleton. So I I think, by and large, those are conducted on American soil. But are we getting coverage about that? I I read—we do see press coverage about these cases now and then, especially 
since the Camp Pendle the cases being tried at Camp Pendleton are are considered almost like local news, and there have been a number of convictions. So the military military law is one way of um, trying to impose accountability on on those who might uh, uh, overstep, you know, go too far in using force or or commit abuses. Is there not, though, a, a really important tactical consideration to making these courts of martial uh, um, a um, a more public kind of uh, conduct, so that uh, our democratic principles are well known around the world? That's a that's a good point. May, maybe the United States should be more should expose or or, or publicize the courts marshals a little bit more actively so that people around the world can see that that we do at times at least try to uh, impose justice on on our own soldiers and our own citizens who have who've broken the laws it, that's probably true it, it's it's i i'm sure it's the case that around the world people are more aware of the abuses than they are aware of the the courts martial that have have subsequently been initiated and as far as burdens of proof and other parts of uh, due process, is there um, a different kind of rigor to uh, take the um, those uh, transgressors to account um, to that we should un- appreciate better, Professor Sandholtz? The I don't. I'm not an expert on military law, but I do know that not all of the typical procedural protections that the accused have under under the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and, and American law apply in courts martials. The, the the standards of evidence are different and Yes. So there there are diff- not all of the procedural safeguards that, that you would enjoy if you were prosecuted under US criminal law would exist in a court martial. But it is it's very it's it is a very rule governed process and uh, a bona fide, you know, legal procedure. And and but the the interesting thing about the the contractors like Blackwater now Z is that they they have been tried in a civilian court. The cases that made it that far. That is true, and that is still a big gray area in terms of which laws apply to civilian contractors, especially civilian contractors that are armed and participate in active combat in, in in live combat the rules are not are not so clear and i guess that's where eric prince the founder for blackwater now z uh yeah i think he fully appreciated that and uh it's it's been their standard of refrain to um uh, you know operate in a um i want to put it in the in a, a very as a privately held company, they publish very little information about their internal affairs. So it's um, it's that that gray area they certainly capitalized on in their uh, expanding their portfolio. I guess one could say. I would yes, I think that's that's fair to say. Well, um, so let's move then using the pivot of the contractors. Let's move from the Iraqi war theater to Afghanistan. I don't, we don't have, we have a lot to talk about, but we have a short time to do it in. Um, since they, they do have a contract, uh, with the CIA as well as the state department in Afghanistan, 
what uh, concerns do you have about their operations there? Because Afghanistan, now we this has been, it's just about nearing the completion of an entire decade. Yes. So what would you say about, first we'll talk about the contractors and then the broader involvement, American military involvement in Afghanistan. I have the same concerns about XE in Afghanistan that I had about them in Iraq. It's it's not clear what the rule, which rules apply to armed private security uh, contractors in Afghanistan, and and I don't know I don't know specifically what their role will be in Afghanistan or, or their missions and assignments. But I would be very concerned if if armed private contractors are operating in Afghanistan and and some of the it seems that the mentality that accompanies those, those some of those contractors the culture. is is uh, a little too trigger happy and i i would not be at all surprised to see more more scandals involving excessive use of force on the part of the, the private contractors since it's and the cia also works in a gray area for yep. for good or ill so it's uh, i guess it's uh, the making of the the most opaque of uh, all um, conditions in, under which uh, an entity like they could be working in. Well, um, so in a general sense then about the American military in Afghanistan, now 10 years later, this is again another another society whose tribal cultures have uh, made a point of a, a memory that is persistent through the generations, persistent memory about transgressions committed against their own uh, members. Um, what... Uh, I think this is where John Paul Lederach was starting out when he talked in 2001 about this kind of a thing. Um, so what do you see are those hazards looming now in our protracted war with no end in sight in Afghanistan, Professor Sandholtz? Yes, it, it's very tough because some of the actions that the U.S. military have taken in Afghanistan have produced civilian casualties, and people just... Don't easily forget those tragic, many large scale in some cases um, civilian deaths. So I, I'm I'm concerned that we've lost. We may have already lost public support in Afghanistan when when a drone strike goes astray or a U.S. jet fighter fires a missile and destroys a civilian house. That gets a, t- a lot of publicity, and that, and that publicity almost overshadows the rest of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. It's 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 quite worrisome. Well, I um, I want where to go with this. That uh, it's I think we're we're less we should be less concerned about the publicity as the uh, the human the human toll that you know there. There, there were these people that were, maybe they were congregating for a funeral, maybe they're congregating for a wedding, and they all go out in one fell swoop mm-hmm. here. And so uh, it's, a, it's a concern that we're, uh, we're leaving this behind and um, uh, not, I mean, hearts and minds are, are lost. And it's, um, uh, I, where do, it, I, I just find it a total menace. And it, it's not, not an unruffling kind. It's just an. It's a completely unnerving kind of a menace. And I. I so if, for people to reflect back on this, what we said. I want to. Uh, I, I guess I have a, a, a want to give it a, a real sense of um, of, of bother. Then, um, then it's a, a politic, a, a sort of a public relations issue kind of a thing. Oh uh, sure. It, it, it's 
clear, it's a humanitarian disaster above all else. That that's for sure. And that's what we hear when we're uh, brought uh, when we have uh, nonprofit organizations that are. Um, you know, based in uh, various communities around Afghanistan, and uh, Eve Ensler, she's championed many of them. Uh, the uh, the um, I'm I'm now not recalling the organizations, but the uh, the uh, Afghan uh, let's see, Rawa Revolutionary Af- uh, Association of Afghan Women, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they they have you know felt sort of under siege with first their own uh, you know the the uh, tribal kinds of leadership mm-hmm. conflicts, and then with the kind of attacks uh, gone awry uh, with the American military, they don't feel like they can go anywhere for any kind of support. But I, before we go further, I wanted to remind everybody, if you've just tuned in, we're talking to Professor Stan Holtz, a political science professor covering human rights and the American military's wars on terror. So um, what is the prescription if... If you have any in mind, Professor Sanholtz, for uh, getting, we're not going to get in front of this. It's already ten years of, of destruction. How how can we, on a citizen level, or um, how can we a- appeal to our policymakers that um, there there are hearts and minds lost, and we need to to gain on this this loss and this war on terror. Yeah, that that is that's the, a great question, and you have to go back to the the standard citizen activist types of politics, the the street corner demonstrations, which during the Iraq War I thought were were quite effective, and now um, you have to also think in terms of writing your representatives in Congress and the Senate and. Getting active in political campaigns for candidates who who support your values. It's it, there's nothing new or magical. It's it's the it's the same stuff that has that uh, has worked at times in the past. And if we want to influence our government and the, its policies, that's that's what we have to do. Well, it seems like a good return on our investment that we're you know as we always talk about that. What happens on the ground to engage the public? Well, I want it. We're t- you've already mentioned the drones, and I I want to. Um, in the time we have remaining, make sure we do justice to um, what the, uh, apart from traditional warfare that we've been waging, the um, the extrajudicial killings, the targeted yeah. killings, either the, with the heads of state or with um, presumed uh, terrorist leaders, uh, we are setting an enormously, um, I think, consequential precedent around the world because there are other countries inevitably now developing their own kind of drones which and we, which we can understand vary from the size of the the a, a large missile warhead down to now about the insect level so there it's a very sophisticated weapon that we've been using unilaterally but what about um, the human rights uh, consequences of many nations engaging in extra killing um, targeted uh, killings with these very sophisticated and minute, becoming more miniature weapons, Professor Sandholtz. Yeah, that that is a great question and a very tough one, because the old rules, the existing rules of war and and international law, apply with uh, some difficulty to these new technologies. It's not clear how the drones, how lethal drones, fit into our existing 
frameworks. It, in one sense, the drones are, like, are weapons like any other. So when they're used in a theater of combat, there's, the usual rules of war should apply, right? You right. avoid civilian targets. You, um, it, the, the normal rules sh- should cover it. It's for their use outside of combat zones. Extrajudicial. Yeah, exactly, like the, the targeted killing of al-Awlaki in, in Yemen. Uh, that raises a lot of questions, uh, and this and the, the the rules have not yet caught up to the, pra- the, where the practices and, and where it's going. So when other countries develop these lethal drones and start using them, the United States, I think, will feel much more eager and pressed to define some rules, some laws that will govern their use. And we need to get ahead of that. I don't, is it, it would be better to be ahead of that game, yeah. But uh, in your kind of work, um, as to the extent that it does overlap with what you're investigating in the wars on terror and uh, the interactive <laughs> with human rights, um, do you see any evidence that there are um, protocols being developed around uh, the the use of this kind of weapon and? Or I mean, or the uh, the Pandora's box may be shattered, not just opened. Mm, yeah, the United States, the the U.S. has been sort of developing rules of of thumb or guidelines, uh, sort of on the fly as, as we go along. For for an intern, for an uh, an American um, for the American use. practice, but yes, but internationally though, are there no there are there any talks, no protocols that no, are not yet, not yet, because so far the U.S. is the only country that has used lethal drones, armed drones. So Really? So far. There are other countries that seem that appear to be on the path toward developing them and deploying them, maybe Israel and maybe the UK. I'm but thinking of China too though, Wayne. Eventually, so sure. Oh and, and probably far beyond those countries. And so at that point we hopefully we won't face some chickens coming home to roost for from the things we've done already. Well, hopefully, is a is a is a word that won't get us very far when we're when we're faced with uh, delicate operations, um, con- negotiations, and all that. And we find, oh, somebody just got taken out by a hummingbird-sized drone, and we and we don't know. We can't. I mean, you can't even see what's uh, on the cartridge, who manufactured it, and who sent it. Maybe, yeah. Perhaps that that may make that even a more gray zone. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Well, for those of you that have just joined us, we're talking to Professor Wayne Sandholtz, political science professor at UC Irvine, talking today with us about the um, the interface of of our war on terror with the human rights uh, as it's maintained around the world, or the lack there of those. Well, um, are there other uh, there are there other scenarios before we close, Professor Wayne Sandholtz, that you uh, that are keeping you up at night. I, I ask that of uh, surgeons. I ask that of uh, uh, re- not too many religious people. They don't stay up at night. They've got everything worked <laughs> out before they hit the sack. But are, uh, that, but keep that keep you up at night with what looms. Well, I, I worry. Uh, I do worry about the the situation in Central Africa and the Lord's Resistance Army, and and I was interested that. Uh, President Obama and sent 100 U.S. military advisors to that part of the world. And were those American? Those weren't contractors, or were they? Those were U.S. military personnel. Okay. And this is a and this is one of those sort of ongoing 
day-to-day humanitarian catastrophes that's probably already that's already claimed millions of lives and just has not seemed to abate re, nor has it really reached the american consciousness to any great degree uh, and so I, I was that that one's been on my mind for for quite a while. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because it's and which you said in the western region now exactly which countries because it's it's spilled over the the borders. Yes, and, that's right. It, the the Lord's Resistance Army started in Uganda and I, and is probably still based there. But the the their their uh, atrocities and their crimes have extended into Central African Republic as well. And Congo, too, aren't they? And Congo, too, yeah. That's right. Well, uh, that's something for us to keep in mind um, as we're uh, watching um, watching the, the developments there. I mean, the, the high stakes of uh, the mineral extraction, I guess, will uh, assure that the, uh, that, that, the, um, that particular group has, uh, is going to maintain a fair amount of clout in terrorizing their population and displacing that top population for perhaps more than a generation. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid that's right. The other area that I worry a lot about is Pakistan and and the, the, the borderlands between Pakistan and Afghanistan. The relations just seem to be deteriorating between the U.S. and Pakistan. It's very hard to see how that can have a happy ending. Yes, and I can't believe we've got this far in the interview without even bringing up Pakistan by <laughs> name. And although it's on the tips of our tongue, yes, the, with the Waziristan, uh, sort of, it's a, it's a kind of a... It's a grayer Kashmir, isn't it? It it is. It's it is a very gray area. And so, um, and it's a very safe area for people that are very scary. <laughs> yes, yes. So I, uh, so well, what is the best source of information you can pitch your favorite uh, outlets for people to improve on their literacy with what kinds of developments you're keeping an eye on, Professor Sandholtz? Oh, I, I'm I'm a traditionalist, and I still read the New York Times in its paper form. <laughs> okay, and you're finding that's pretty good information. It's very solid. It's very solid. I also like Foreign Policy Magazine, which comes out about six times a year, but has very thought-provoking coverage as well, and an excellent website. Well, that's good to have that um, pitch for people who wanted, who found themselves a bit broadsided about. Uh, some things that maybe they weren't keeping track of. I find that the the New York Times gave me a terrific diagram when we were talking about the drones. It showed the evolution of the the large scaled weapon all the way down to the the little hummingbird yes. and the insects. Well, they call it swarm or something yes. like that. And I thought, I'm not sure if we all get a chance to look at this kind of a diagram, but it was very very useful. So um, it's good that you think that's a, a helpful resource. Well, I know you have uh, lots to accomplish in this day, and I'm sorry we can't give more uh, airtime to this, but perhaps there are um, other developments that you'll post us on in the future on Ask a Leader. And uh, I thank you, Professor Wayne Sanholtz, for, for being on the program this morning. Thank you, Claudia. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Wayne Sanholtz, political science professor at UC Irvine, who has um, published uh, recently, in the last several years, um, both the, um, let's see, it's called International Norms and Cycles with Oxford University Press and Prohibiting Plunder, How Norms Change, also with Oxford University Press. Well, we'll be back in just a bit with my next guest, Catherine Collinson, a retirement and market trends expert, 
and uh, we'll talk about how we ought to start thinking now if we haven't already. Very important work, especially in these economic times. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Catherine Collinson, a retirement uh, and market trends expert. She is the president of the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies and senior vice president of strategic planning. Her analysis gets the core of the looming problems, uh, among other things, uh, research and outreach initiatives. Catherine Collinson oversees the annual Transamerica Retirement Survey a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, USA Today Money, uh, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Kiplinger's uh, Report, CBS Money Watch, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, Employee Benefits News, NHR, that must be Human Resource Magazine, PBS Nightly Business Report, NPR's Marketplace, and CBS affiliates throughout the country. Catherine Collinson is kind enough to call in this interview from L.A., and her, where her office is. She's earned her bachelor's degree in British and American literature at Scripps College, Claremont, California, and her master's of business administration here at UC Irvine. Catherine Collinson, welcome to Ask a Leader. Hey, thank you, Claudia. I'm so glad that you are able to bring us up to speed on what we need to know when we haven't been paying attention to our needs to plan ahead. And I'm we're, we're talking to... Uh, an audience that I hope they're up and running around. They're not the ones that aren't in their classes right now. And those of our peers who still have been a bit in denial about this, Catherine Collinson, why is planning not to retire simply not a viable retirement strategy? Well, strategy. We're going to talk about uh, some things more geared to the young people, but let's talk about this because of the kind of the desperation that we're all, uh, it's very palpable here uh, as the, the market continues to wobble. You know, our research at the Transamerica Center has found that 39% of American workers plan to work past age 70 or simply do not plan to retire. And exactly to your point, uh, planning not to retire is simply not a viable retirement strategy. Uh, too often, life's circumstances can get in the way uh, that can derail the best laid retirement plans or planning to work uh, indefinitely. And those can range from a job loss to a health issue or the need to take time off to be a caregiver for a family member. Uh, so even if you do think that you're going to work as long as possible or simply never retire, which in some ways is a wonderful way to bridge savings gaps, uh, you really need a backup plan. And what we found is that fewer than one in five who plan to do so have a backup plan if any of those life events that I just described uh, derail their plans. Well, uh, Catherine Conson, then if um, you're using age 70 as a um, line there to uh, draw. Uh, what about those who become infirm, have setbacks, uh, demands put on them, even before they're 70? That's going to drive up the number of people who are uh, presuming um, uh, that they will be able to catch themselves with uh, continued employment. 
Yeah, and the reality is, Claudia, um, life's you know unforeseen circumstances can can come at any age, and that's why it's really incumbent upon everyone, um, you know, all adult Americans and uh, Americans in the workforce, to set a course to save and plan for retirement, but also have a backup plan that disrupts their ability to save or um, even worse, requires them to tap into their retirement savings long before retirement age. Well, let's start with savings, because that's something something that uh, can be done when the first earnings, uh, people are making their first earnings, and something that the students can think about now when they're going through all that disposable income, that... Uh, there is a people don't realize the fullest extent to which the savers credit can benefit them. Can you explain to young listeners and all of us why that's a good track to get on and how they can do it? Okay, uh, you know that is a great lead-in, um, especially for uh, younger, you know, younger. Uh, workers entering the workforce, as well as uh, low-to-middle-income workers and families, um, there is actually a tax credit called the Savers Credit that if you meet the income requirements uh, set forth by the IRS, Are those the government high? will actually give you a full-on tax credit uh, on top of the deferred savings, if you're uh, saving on a tax-deferred basis, on top of that deferred savings. They'll give you a little tax credit for saving for retirement. And and what is the threshold you're saying for uh, so it's at any where is the the line drawn there for qualification or is it it depends on your um, your it depends on your, your filing depe- status yes and uh, we have exact details posted on our website at transamericacenter.org and we're going to put can... that on the podcast so that people can go back to that for more information fantastic okay. and the IRS has it but for for single filers it's in the high 20,000 uh, 20 it's like around $27,000 a year and then for married uh, uh filing jointly the income threshold is just over 50,000 a year and then you were talking also in your literature about where uh people can put money uh, add money to their their uh, retirement plans and the or is this the this is the same one and the same that you're talking about? Well, you know, I think what you might be talking about is another wonderful opportunity for people age fifty and older. That's to what save I meant. Yes. a bit more, and those are called catch-up contributions. So for for those who meet the age requirement, um, it allows them to save above and beyond the actual deferral rate, uh, the deferral limits of a a qualified retirement plan, like a 401k plan or an IRA. So the the logical pr- places to go to would be everybody's human resources um, offices, or they go to your website that we'll put, as I said, on the podcast, or they could go to, is there some very simple IRS kind of document that talks about um, catch-up contributions in that generic frame of Absolutely. reference? Absolutely. Um, oh. There is a wealth of information on the IRS website at irs.gov. Okay, we can include that in the podcast. It may not be the first place that people think to go to, but it's a wonderful resource. Well, that's very good to know then. And it's even easier than learning how to file one's uh, paperwork at the end of the year. (laughs) So irs.gov. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, but when we talk about savings, it's probably, it's very problematic for people who are finding that they're going through all of their monthly uh, salary just to... um, keep up with all of their uh, 
obligations and uh, and that kind of a thing. So is there something we can uh, not so glibly dismiss here with those individuals, many of us who don't have, um, I mean, if just if it's just a little bit, I guess that somebody can set aside that's giving them a little something to have later on. Yeah, and you know, that's a great point in that the whatever you save today can only help you in the long term, uh, meaning that if you don't save at all, um, you will have nothing and it, at retirement. So it's just really important to start saving on a consistent basis and get in the habit of saving. And it sounds, especially now in this economy and, you know, the, the cost of living, it sounds daunting. And our research has even found that people need a good starting place that's easy to understand. Yes. And really one of the best starting places is um, when, when looking at employment opportunities, um, consider retirement benefits, and specifically a 401k plan or other types of retirement plans, as part of your total compensation package. Okay. So when looking for a job, uh, retirement benefits along with health benefits and other benefits are a very important part of the compensation equation. And we could say that uh, they, maybe the employers respect you more. They understand your more strategic thinking, and the, the hats off that you uh, you went down that path with them at the front. Yes, and many employers, and we you know we've surveyed employers. In fact, most empl- employers believe that a company-sponsored retirement plan is very important for both attracting and retaining employees. So I I wanted to um, bring up though when. Um, we talk about the uh, the firms, um, empl- some employers voicing warnings about, as you say, warnings about uh, employee re- retirement not being enough. Uh, there is certainly a great deal of press, Catherine Collinson, about uh, employers whittling away. Some of th- I, the the anecdote that keeps coming to my mind is the stewards who realize that her airline just absolutely uh, emptied out her. Uh, the portfolio for all of their their retirement packages, and they had uh, you know a quarter or less of what they thought they had to retire on. So, it's not all employers though are advancing uh, this uh, benevolent uh, attack in the same way. You know, in that for for all workers and for all of us, um, because the reality is, it's each day passes, <laughs> we get a day older. And, uh, you know, we'll all reach retirement age someday. It's really important to stay on top of things. Um, and if you're saving in an employer-sponsored plan, if you're counting on a traditional defined benefit plan, which is, you know, the scenario that you just described, um, and saving for and investing outside of work, you cannot just set it and forget it. You've got to keep an eye on it, and you've got to, you, you one, you have to chart a course, but two, you have to monitor your progress along the way uh, because time and circumstance can change, and the assumptions that held up when you set, you know, started out uh, may very well change. Markets could, all, all those things could change. If you're just joining us, my guest is Catherine Collinson, president of the Trans America Center for Retirement Studies. She's a, a retirement and market trends expert there. Um, I uh, wanted to then go into, you've laid out a number of different uh, helpful suggestions for displaced workers um, to improve their retirement prospects. You've already talked about the catch-up contributions. Uh, how about the... Um, 
what the policymakers can be doing in, uh, as a part of the community helping us out? Yeah, one of the biggest things is education um, and and just continuing to promote the message on the need to plan and save. And there's some really, there's one piece of legislation, it's been introduced a couple of times, which would be enormously helpful for, for workers, and that is simply requiring retirement plan providers on a worker's uh, statement at least once a year doing a projection of what their income stream would look like based on their savings when they reach retirement age. Excellent. Um, The best comparison is similar to those Social Security statements that we get where it shows our work history, and then at the bottom it says when you reach your uh, Social Security age, this is the benefit that you can expect to receive. Yes. So something similar to that so that people can have a gauge to see, you know, sort of a, you know, a look in the mirror. Are they saving enough? Uh, Do they need to increase their contributions to the plan so that they can increase their income stream when they reach retirement age? Can we uh, name a a template that's working out there that can be a a part uh, that can be adopted more broadly? You know, there are there are a lot of good templates out there. A lot of it is simply bringing consistency to it. Okay. And and that that's also a great opportunity to mention. There is a wealth of retirement planning tools and calculators that are available uh, through organizations like the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies, as well as other organizations that have a presence online. Um, You do not have to wait till you're 50 years old to go to the AARP website, and they have a wealth of information for for people of all ages who are uh, planning for their retirement. other other publications, um, you know, just to name a few, Smart Money, Kiplinger's, uh, Yahoo Finance, they have all, they all have gr- U.S. News and World Report, they all have great tools and resources so, at no cost. Well, that's a, that is a wealth of information. It's a matter, I guess, of um, maybe uh, all of us along the way, we put aside that uh, diversion, that uh, le- putting our arms around the Facebook for 45 minutes to four hours, we could uh, pick up one of these uh, financially improving literacy uh, <laughs> documents so that we can uh, be glad we did it. I, re- I I must say, it was very interesting yesterday I heard on uh, a business radio program on National Public Radio where uh, a number, uh, there two, two individuals, two academics uh, were talking to a metaphor for what was going on in the European financial crisis. And I thought it resonated with the individual wage earner and investor and retiree is the analogy, the, the Aesop fable of the grasshopper singing and the ant working. So that, um, that the ant was mindful of putting it away ever so gradually, ever so studiously, uh, diligently. The grasshopper sang and the grasshopper uh, wanted to take out a loan with that part that we digress, but um, but the the grasshopper was deferring on attending to what was really going to be necessary for the end uh, the end of the life frame. So, um, have, have, is this something that uh, resonates with you and how uh, we can try to help people appeal to people to think really long term, where there just doesn't seem to be the appetite to do that? 
You know, that's really interesting. I don't, I don't know that I would adopt that Aesop's fable. Do you <laughs> have one you like better? Uh, I kind of like to think of the little engine that could. Okay. The slope. The slope's gotten steep in the yeah, last while. The, the, I think I th- can. I think I can. Uh, the little engine that could, that chugged its way up the mountain uh, despite all obstacles. Okay. So it's uphill, folks, but um, but the literacy is at our fingertips everywhere with our laptops, with the, 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 the um, brochures at the the dentist office where we're waiting and we can pick up the magazines that, um, with the smart money and that kind of a thing. Put down, put down Sports Illustrated, pick up smart money. So, yeah. yeah, and you know, just take it one step at a time. Start with calculating a savings goal. And if you have an employer-sponsored plan, making sure that you participate uh, and that you contribute to the plan at a minimum up to the employer's matching contribution and save even more. Um, you know, there's a big mis- misconception out there that if you save up to the match or if you even save up to the limit, that it's going to be enough to cover your expenses in retirement. And for many people, uh, clearly saving 3 or 5% is not going to be enough. Uh, so it's really important to uh, do, you know, run some calculations. Check out a couple different calculators because they have uh, different underlying assumptions. Um, and from there, figure out how much as a percentage of your income that you need to save. And it may start out as being completely overwhelming. However, get in the habit, take baby steps, because in the long run, uh, a thousand baby steps can lead to a quantum leap. Well, does this this sounds sort of like a whole different mindset when people are concerned about whether they're going to get back into gainful employment, whether they're going to, you know, how they're going to uh, make their, um, you know, their how they adjust to earning a half of what they had been used to earning. Now they've got to reverse that and say, well, but I have to forego five to three to five percent of my take home, no, of my of my salary, my my. Uh, at, um, pre-tax salary. Um, that's what, I mean, 3 to 5% is the pre-tax salary, correct? Yeah, uh, in the calculators, yeah. Ca- okay. So, um, it's, Which is not enough. It's not enough, and it, and, but it seems like a whole different world of thinking from people who are trying just to eke out a living now and, um, you know, uh, re- rethink what their real net worth is in the labor market and watching, as we see, the whole demographic sort of uh, erosion in of the middle class. You know, what's so important, especially now, because so many Americans have been, most Americans have been impacted the, by the economy and the recession. 99% at see least. The, the retirement outlook of what one would normally think of as high income earners uh, being dampened. And the reality is, that we all need to do the very best that we can, given the circumstances, and and becoming educated. Oh yes, thanks for coming so back to that. So many tools, and then being mindful in our de- decision making. And in the end, when you look at how you slice your own personal financial pie, some of those pieces may not be as big as you want them to be, but at least you're mindfully deciding in balancing the trade-offs. And I, before we close, I do want to go back to how you say that uh, education, retraining, 
all uh, thinking of uh, your best employment possibilities. Uh, I'm trying to think in your your suggestions for retirement success. You're talking that there's a the education component is very important that we we consider. The education component is phenomenally important, especially the value of a college degree. In our research, one of the things that we found, we have a study on it that we posted um, about a year ago, is the retirement of outlook of uh, workers who have a college degree versus those who do not are night and day. And if you look even at unemployment statistics, uh, those with a college degree are far less likely to be unemployed than those without. Uh, Even now, Catherine, I mean, even with the, the massive reconfiguration of our economy with so many people underemployed or out of that are uh, long-term unemployed now that are in you know IT and a lot of really uh, highly skilled uh, sectors Um, on a relative basis um, educated workers as long as their skills are up to date uh, are far better positioned to if they're unemployed to find employment than those without. So it's just a matter of they may not be able to maintain what they had, but their drop is still higher than an un, undereducated uh, worker whose their drop is precipitous whether but uh, into a no income whether and versus a person with high skills in inter, yeah. in uh, uh, IT. So- Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. So it's even tougher for those without a college degree. Okay. It's so tough for everybody, but I'm thinking, uh, but you're saying in relative terms, though, they are better equipped. So it's, uh, you talk about retraining and education and uh, just keeping in that loop uh, so that um, one is is just as protected as one could possibly be to uh, maintain their their financial stability. Yes. And so... uh, any other backup plans that you have not already talked about, Katherine Collinson? Um, you know, as we talk about retirement and planning for retirement, it's also, as you've just touched on, a big, bigger picture. You know, the secret to retirement is working <laughs> so that you can work and save over time because it's impossible to save if you don't have a job. Um, but it's also, you know, it's really important to each and every one of us to make our, sure our skills and abilities are up to date and consistent with the needs of today's employers and today's job market. And it's also very important to have uh, some emergency savings set aside in case that rainy day comes, uh, as it has for so many. So nobody ever said it was easy. However, the more educated you are and the more mindful you are in your decision-making, the better off you'll be in the long run. So maybe mindful is uh, thinking about the the daily trip to the um the uh, boutique coffee vendor, maybe that's where mindfulness can start to uh, take shape. Maybe that coffee, maybe that $3 cup of coffee doesn't taste as good as you really think it does. Or maybe it tastes better if you try it once every week, once every two weeks, instead of once or twice every day. If you, if you savor it uh, less often. Yes. Okay. Well, I, th- I think we can put that to practice. Well, I really thank you, Catherine Collinson. Uh, for talking with us this morning, improving our literacy. And I am going to put as many as I can. Uh, I'll lead with the Transamerica Center um, nonprofit uh, arm there of, uh, of Transamerica Life Insurance. I'm put that uh, along with some other uh, websites on the podcast so people have uh, everywhere to choose from and can 
start, like you said, stepping one step at a time to uh, take to to gain literacy on this because nobody wants to realize in their horror that with it'll be it's the analogy we can close is it's the frog in the hot water. I guess retirement, you could find out it, when it's too late, when you're trying to retire, that you didn't turn the water down. You didn't save, put aside some money that you would have been in some kind of position to save, and the water was too hot, and you are cooked in terms of your being protected in your retirement years. Yeah, and I will just add one final comment, oh, do. especially for uh, you know students who are just looking to graduate and you know start off their careers. You have the ability to uh, forge your retirement destiny. Okay, there you go. You've got, you know, a good 40 years of working and saving ahead of you. And if you start young, your long-term prospects are far better than if you wait until you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s. And uh, Time is on your side. Very, very good. Well, I appreciate your laying that final message out there. It's time for us to close, and I thank you, Catherine Collinson, for being on this program. Catherine Collinson, the um, the I, what, oh my goodness, we have a uh, just a minute, please stand with, stay with me, please. Okay. Well, I guess we don't have to uh, broadcast that. We're going to set it aside. Uh, and then we're going to, um, okay, Catherine, we're here. Well, I need to close the show now. That wasn't sure if the emergency broadcast system had a requirement for me, but apparently they do not. Uh, that is Catherine Collinson, the um, president of Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies, retirement and market trend expert. Thank you for being on Ask a Leader with us today. And thank you for having me. Good to have you and all the best. That was uh, the end of Ask a Leader. We've got to do let George Rosales have his show back. After all, he's been on jury duty, and who knows what it would have been like to serve with, along with George. We'll be back next week with more content. I've got lots and lots of people to cram into a show, and I'm going to also be pitching our fundraiser starting next Tuesday, November 1st. Thanks for joining us today. Strangers in the night Exchanging glances Wondering in the night What were the chances We'd be sharing love Before the night was through